Hello everyone, welcome once again to A Reason for Hope. It's good to be back with you guys. Here we are once again. A Reason for Hope, in case it's uh, your first time joining us or in case you've forgotten, is an hour-long live broadcast which is dedicated and guided by your questions on God's Word, the Bible. That's right, you can send in your questions through the multiple online platforms where we're streaming live and we have some wonderful guests here who will answer those questions using the source of truth, God's Word, the Bible. That's what we're all about here at Reason for Hope. So we are very glad that you're joining us and sending those questions in to provide our content today. So be brave, send your questions in, get them in early. Sometimes we do run out of time, so we'd love to receive those questions. Could be a verse or passage of scripture that you'd like to uh, have explained more, maybe even something you're going through in your life, maybe something going on in the world and you'd like a biblical perspective, maybe even other belief systems and religions. Any honest question that you have on your heart, as long as you know the Bible, is where we get the answers on Reason for Hope. My name is Dave Robson. Good to be back with you hosting today. With us today we have Pastor Scott Richards. He's a senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, where we're streaming from. And also we have Pastor Sean Richards with us, of course. Thank you, gentlemen, for making the time. Well, thank you for here. coming back from across the pond <laughs> yeah. and joining us again. I thought about staying, but no, I thought I'd better come back yeah. with my children and all that good stuff. But, uh, uh, authentic fish and chips can be a real temptation. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So. That was the last meal that I had before I came back, <laughs> <laughs> with the heartburn to, uh, to boot as well. Well, as I mentioned, The Reason for Hope is a live broadcast. Uh, we're here with you Monday uh, through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. here Mountain Standard Time. We're here in Tucson, Arizona. That's where we're streaming from. But of course, you can join us all around the world, and many uh, people uh, do. It's an outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship, as I mentioned, here in Tucson, Arizona. So you can go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. If you're in the Tucson area and looking for somewhere to uh, worship and um, serve the Lord, why don't you come check us out? We're here near Princeton I-10 on the west side of the freeway. You're very welcome to come see what we're all about here. But for the purposes of tonight. Um, you can go to our website there, calvarychristianfellowship.com, follow the Watch Live tab, and that will take you to our live page. Anytime we are live, we stream there. You'll see a, a, a list there of upcoming events and also a countdown to our next show. Unless we are live, as we are right now, you'll see the video. You can sign in with a, a username of your choice, and then that's one method that you can send in your questions. I will be monitoring uh, that platform and receiving your questions uh, there for the show today. ccftucson.online.church is the direct link to get you to that page. Or again, just follow the Watch Live tab from our um, calvarychristianfellowship.com website. It takes you to the same place. We're on Facebook, of course, facebook.com slash ccftucson, or just search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. That's another way you can get your question to us right there in the chat box attached to the video where we're live. I'll be monitoring those. That's another way you can send us in your question. Uh, we have an app for your mobile device as well. Just look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson in your app store, whether it's your iPhone or Android. And also on Roku and Apple TV, we have a channel, so you can add us as a channel on there. Watch us on your big screen as well. But uh, through the app, there's a chat function that you can send your question in that way as well. We're on YouTube. The name of the channel is A Reason for Hope. So search for A Reason for Hope there on YouTube. And again, we're live. And again, there's a, you can put in the comments your question and we will be receiving those, Lord willing, loud and clear as well. It's a great place to go to catch up on archive shows. If you see that live tab right there, anytime we've been live at all, it's archived there for you. So our services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship and, and this A Reason for Hope broadcast is all found there. We also upload questions of the week and some other content as well. So check that out, the live tab there, A Reason for Hope on YouTube. 
Uh, our pastor Scott here, who I introduce, is on Twitter. His handle is ScottR4H, Scott, letter R, number four, letter H. Uh, he posts highlights from the show and some commentary on like, world events and some funnies and some seriouses and all kinds of things. So if you're on Twitter, um, it's always pretty eventful on there, isn't it, Scott? Yeah. The Twitter Oh, my goodness, yes. Whew. Yeah. <laughs> you're brave. You're brave. But, you know, it, it just every day it convinces me of the inherent goodness of man. <laughs> I'm sure. Especially when they're allowed to display that inherent goodness anonymously. Yes. <laughs> without any consequence. No sarcasm yeah. there at yeah. all. No, but, no, uh, no, 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 not at all. No. So anyway, if you're, on, if you're on Twitter, if you're brave enough to. Well, we get in there and we fight the good fight. I'm so. sure we do. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Scott Arthur H, follow along with him on Twitter. Scott Richards right there. Uh, we're on Rumble as well. If you're on that platform, look for A Reason for Hope Bible Q&A. And we upload videos there as well. So if you're using that uh, platform, I'm not. I haven't been on there personally myself. But if you are, I have never rumbled either. I've no, no. You rumble, should, right? I rumble. You, you rumble. Rumbles, we yeah. should get ready to rumble. Yeah, yeah. I like to work that in as whenever I can. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, there you go. We're on rumble there. And of course, we have an email address: questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questions for hope, all spelled out with letters at gmail.com. Send us your uh, questions there as well, of course, anytime. We'll be checking that during the broadcast as well. But uh, that's another method. If you're joining us on the radio, we're sure glad that you're, you're listening. Drive safely if you're on your drive time. Uh, you are listening to the last show we did pre-recorded, so we're not live with you per se. But use that email address I mentioned, questionsforhope at gmail.com when it's safe to do, to do so. And we'll get to that on our next show. And consider those other aforementioned platforms where you can join us live. And once again, we'll be waiting for all those questions coming in. They guide our content for the most part, so send them on in, and we can't wait to uh, hear what's on your heart today as we seek the Lord together. Well, talking of seeking the Lord, shall we pause to pray at this point? Sean, yeah. would you like to, to pray? How have missed your prayers as I've been away for so long? All right. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, sir. <laughs> Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. We want to invite you to be here as well, not only to give my father and I the same wisdom that will communicate your heart accurately, but to address where people's hearts are at in their relationship with you, even if it's distant, to show that the loving kindness of your word and of your heart mm -hmm. are what are going to lead them to repentance and as well for those that are struggling in their walk with you overwhelmed by the darkness of this world or just simply looking for their daily strength let us all find it in the same place that we ask that you would provide for us we pray this in jesus name mm -hmm. amen. 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 amen amen well scott is there anything you'd like to share with us sometimes you give us a bit of a yeah well update well just uh, sort of uh, following through on uh, a prophecy update we gave you last week as many of you know over the weekend uh, there was a major operation uh, that the Israeli Defense Forces conducted in uh, the uh, territory of Samaria, which is in northern Israel, north-central Israel, in the uh, Palestinian uh, Authority-controlled uh, West Bank, as it is known. Uh, the city of Jenin, uh, there were a, a number of terrorist groups that were operating there and uh, were about the business of putting together a, a series of laboratories where they were manufacturing improvised explosive devices. If uh, you're with us, you know that uh, Hezbollah kind of pioneered the way on this by sending one of their operatives deep into Israeli territory, uh, all the way down to uh, the uh, area of Megiddo, which Sean uh, and I, you, you and I have visited while we're in Israel. One of the major mm -hmm. tourist stops is there in Megiddo, where uh, you get to see uh, now, Solomon built a, a military emplacement uh, there that is also known as the Valley of Armageddon. Well, they uh, managed to plant an IED. Uh, it blew up. Uh, there were minor injuries to the uh, person uh, that was driving the car that triggered the IED. But it seems like that was uh, a idea that whose time has come. And so 
in the city of Janine. They established these laboratories where they uh, imported a bunch of explosives, uh, courtesy of the Iranians, and uh, were about the business of uh, constructing a bunch of these IEDs. Uh, they also had rocket launchers and different things there, not only uh, stored in, uh, say, basements of houses and schools, as is their want, but also a major trove of uh, these weapons was found in a mosque and uh, in the uh, shootout uh, to take uh, this mosque and to empty it of these explosives and other uh, terrorist devices. Uh, one Israeli uh, Defense Forces uh, soldier was killed. Uh, there's a debate now uh, as to whether he was killed by a uh, terrorist uh, or whether it was friendly fire, and they're still trying to figure that out uh, as we go on the air here. But uh, suffice it to say, uh, the big question is, uh, the operation came to a close, the IDF withdrew from Janine and gave it back over into the care of uh, the Palestinian Authority. We all know what a great job they do in uh, restraining terrorism. Uh, so uh, was it successful or was it not? Well, believe it or not, a uh, left-handed compliment, I think, to this operation was delivered uh, by a, a very interesting uh, individual, uh, a fellow uh, by the name of Esmail Ka'ani, who is the head of the Iranian Quds forces. Uh, he took the place of uh, Qasim Soleimani, who, uh, as you probably recall, was uh, the uh, mastermind of Iran's uh, terroristic dealings, not only against Israel, but across the Middle East. Uh, Qasim Soleimani uh, met his maker after he was taken out by a Hellfire drone strike and destroyed the car that he was driving in. Well, Ismail Ka'ani is the guy who has assumed uh, the mantle uh, from Qasim Soleimani and uh, was uh, interviewed today uh, in the aftermath of uh, the wrapping up of the operation at Janine, uh, whereupon he said it was a tremendous victory for the forces of Islam. He said, quote, today we are witnessing that the Zionist regime brought all its forces to the field in the Janine camp, but the Palestinian youth hit him in the mouth. He claims that the Palestinians are able to carry out numerous operations against Israel, uh, he then turned his attention to Israel. He said the children of Palestine have never been as powerful and strong as today. And on the other hand, the criminal Israelis have never been like today, implying that Israel was divided internally by protest, which I would say is a pretty accurate uh, take. Uh, while Palestinians are united, uh, Iran's goal in the last years has been to entrench in Syria and then unify various Iranian-backed groups against Israel, including militias in Iraq and Syria, Hezbollah, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and Hamas. He also pointed out that uh, there's been a sea change in this world in that the United States influence in the Middle East, according to this man, is declining, that Syria has returned to the Arab League, and uh, that uh, the rise of China, including China putting forth a competing uh, world economic system that would not be based upon the dollar, but probably upon the yen, uh, would uh, be very much in keeping with Iran's dreams of uniting behind uh, China and uh, Russia and, of course, Iran and uh, the rest of their cohorts in the Middle East. In fact, Iran is seeking to see a China-led world order working with Russia because uh, they would feel that that would be the best way to achieve 
their ends. So, you know, what does this have to do with uh, evaluating the effectiveness of the operation in Janine? I think whenever you see a guy like this go on and say it was a complete and total victory and the Zionists are on the run, I think you can pretty much assure that uh, the terrorists, um, well, pretty much got their hat handed to them. Uh, Israel accomplished all of the, uh, the goals that they had there and then withdrew, again, the loss of life of even one IDF soldier is tragic. Uh, Thirteen uh, Palestinians were killed in the operation. Most of them have been identified as uh, those who were defending these uh, IED labs and, and so on. Uh, but uh, I would say, all things considered, it does appear that uh, Israel took out a major block of terroristic infrastructure. Uh, I do think it is interesting that this fellow is talking about a reshifting of uh, the major players in the Middle East, uh, the United States becoming uh, more and more, in a sense, seen in the world as a paper tiger, uh, having a large military, but really not the will or, and declining skills and being able to uh, implement and uh, exercise its control. Uh, once again, uh, that would be a huge problem if not for, say, Psalm 121 that says that he watches over Israel will never slumber or sleep, referring to the Lord. Mm -hmm. uh, I do not in any way, shape, or form denigrate or minimize the skillfulness of the Mossad. Apparently the Mossad kidnapped a uh, major player in organizing terroristic uh, raids against Israel and other countries off the streets of Tehran and took him back to Israel. Mm -hmm. um, pretty nifty operation when you stop and think of kind of James Bondy, if you will. Right. But, uh, you know, I, I would say that Israel really does have to look after their own interests. I hope that the United States continues to support Israel uh, as far as being uh, a loyal ally. I, I really believe that is the uh, one thread that keeps us going. Uh, certainly mm -hmm. it's not our righteousness as a nation. Uh, certainly it's not uh, what we're contributing to the world these days. Mm. Certainly it's not what's going on within our leadership. But God promised that he would bless those who blessed Abraham's children and curse those who cursed them. So I think that's what we're dealing with here today. So a yeah. uh, bit of a prophecy update for you. just wanted to wrap up uh, the details on that. But apparently the Janine operation uh, was a staggering success. Otherwise, the head of the Quds Force wouldn't say, oh, we really showed those Israelis. So right. there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks yeah. for keeping us up to date with that. That's great stuff. Yeah. Well, we've got some, got some questions coming in. If you guys are ready to jump on into that. Let's do it. What do you think? Um, Monique, we're, we're going to start with your question because you joined us again. I know it was a question we had from uh, perhaps yesterday or the day before, and you're with us. So um, your persistence has brought you to the top of the queue right there. <laughs> I said queue because I've been in England to the line. Now, I have one question for you before we get to our question. Okay. Did people in England think you had an American accent? You know, I didn't get much of that this time. I think it switched back pretty quickly when I started to hear that, uh, that brogue over yeah. there. But, but it's hard because my, you know, my kids were with me and they're American. So sometimes it gets very confusing. But yeah, they, they said I was sounding more British and using more British words and stuff like that. So, like Ooh. just now, Q, the word Q jumped yeah, out. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say, well, <laughs> we haven't corrupted you entirely. Break, I'll be confused for a few weeks. <laughs> we, but, uh, we still think you sound brilliant. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Monique, yes, your question. Uh, follow up from Monday. Is it God's will and calling for some people to be sick and poor? I don't understand. The word says the poor you will always have with you. Why? So I think the question's it's almost around the uh, prosperity gospel does god really you know doesn't god i know uh, the question she posed it before doesn't god want us to be 
you know, healthy, wealthy, and wise and great? Isn't that God's will for us? Yeah, there's three angles people try to go about this whole issue with, all of which are making a fundamental misunderstanding about the point of each passage. And fortunately, you can just look up the passage and it will clarify what it's actually addressing. The first is this idea of nihilistic predestination, that in any positive or negative sense, a la Isaiah 45, which we'll get into in a moment, they make the push that, of course, when anything happens, it is the direct purpose of God, and not just purpose in that he can work all things together for good. We can say wholeheartedly amen to that, but that in this fallen sinful world, the fallenness of man and the effects thereof are also the direct consequence of God's actions on us. And as proof text, they'll usually go to Exodus chapter 4, where, don't note the context, just read the passage, the Lord says to Moses in verse 11, who has made man's mouth, who makes the mute, the deaf, the seen, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now I say ignore the context kind of facetiously because verse 10 is the reason why God brought that up to begin with. Moses says to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Now we know that uh, with uh, cross-referencing this with Josephus, with Stephen the martyr, (laughs) and other people noting Moses' early 40-year career in Egypt, he was a fantastic speaker, even led military campaigns. So obviously Moses is just trying to get out of this, and God calls him out. Mighty in word indeed, yeah. Which, of course, is the whole point that God's calling him out for here. You're not slow of speech. You may not have had to ample company or audiences apart from sheep for the last 40 years in Midian, but the fact is, I'm going with you. This is a superficial detail. He goes on to say, therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. So God's not making this doctrinal statement that I cause people to be born blind or deaf. Note, in this passage, we'll get to that, but in this passage to say, I cause people to be deaf and I cause people to be mute, he's saying, I'm the one who's going to cause you to say what you need to say, not you. So stop dodging the issue here. Right. Now, if we want a passage that would directly denote that God would cause someone to, of course, be born with a disability, we'd go to the Gospel of John chapter 9, where in the introductory verses, the disciples are looking at a man who is born blind. He was born with a disability. Fill in your blank as far as this example is concerned, but a disability from birth, nothing that was the result of his action, nothing the result of the actions of others. The disciples even ask, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither. So the idea of sin being the result of or every action is an equal and opposite reaction, that in the spiritual world, nothing bad happens to you unless you sin, you cause it, or someone else sins and puts the consequences on you. Yes, that is two ways that sin does take place in this world, but Jesus also noted what? That the glory of God may be revealed in him. So, oddly enough, and this is what ties into the question here, God's intent in allowing a disability wasn't just so that it would be taken away, but that so people would see God's power demonstrated through him. Mm. Now, we can see this from a variety of different angles. We could note how the removal of that disability showed who Jesus was as having authority over nature and fulfilling Old Testament prophecies, uh, you know, giving sight to the blind and so forth. There's also the idea of, well, you're put in this situation by God 
and it's an opportunity for you to develop character rather than dependence on your senses. And we can see examples, uh, Corey Ten Boom, I believe, who was a, uh, or uh, Johnny Erickson Todd, excuse me, right. uh, who was a quadriplegic as a result of a physical injury that she had in her adolescent years. And of course, yeah. she has grown in a relationship with God in spite of her disability. God's used it for the better. But then asking the question then, so was it God's will for her to be crippled? Well, no more than for Moses to get mumbly or for yeah. <laughs> uh, the man born blind to be disabled. God can use the fact that we're in a fallen world to infer malice, to infer, I guess, uh, fault on God's part for these things to happen, that he's the direct cause of them, would be taking a step too far, which is then when we go to Isaiah 45, and usually skeptics that haven't read anything of Isaiah, let alone this chapter, would go, well, doesn't it say in your Bible that God's the cause of all evil in the world? Well, maybe in the poetic Edus, but not in the Bible. This is Isaiah chapter 45, and let's start at verse, let's start at verse 5. I am the Lord, there is no other, there is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. So what's God setting up here? Addressing Cyrus the Great, right? 200 years before he's born, by the way, yeah. <laughs> and making the point of emphasis, this is for the purpose that you know I am God. What purpose? It'll go on to say, but it goes on to give an example. Verse 7. I form the light and create darkness. Now, before we even get to the next verse, is darkness a thing, or is there some sort of poetic language here? I believe it's poetic because all darkness is, is the absence of light. But God yeah. creates light yeah. and note the absence of light. Right. He could note where it is right. and isn't. Then he goes on to note, I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, when I say poetic structure, I'm not saying that there isn't something literal here, but there's definitely a point of contrast to the positive, light, to the negative, darkness, to the positive, peace, to the negative, calamity. Sometimes it's translated war, sometimes it's translated evil, sometimes it's just translated as disaster. But God causing the positive and the negative, you're going to know that I do these things. In what sense? Verse 8, rain down, you heavens, from above. Let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open. Let them bring forth salvation. Let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. That's a weird follow-up for saying that God causes all evil. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him, remember Romans chapter yep. 9, yep. who uh, forms it, what are you making? Shall the hand that do the handiwork say, I have no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to the woman, what have you brought forth? Now it goes on to note what? That you are going to conquer Babylon that the bronze gates will be cut in fetters, that the river will be diverted. He predicts in detail the conquest of Cyrus the Great over the capital city of Babylon, which we can verify in history. Right. Look at the Babylonian annals, the Medo-Persian Chronicle, and so forth. But noting prophetically what? God's the one that's going to give you this victory. And how do you know that? Because I've called you out by name, Cyrus. 
you in your peacetime or your wartime. I'm the one who's directing you. Now, why does God take direct credit for this? Because going as far back as the time of the prophet Joel, who was before the time of Isaiah, by the way, what was being predicted? Babylon is going to be used to judge Israel for her idolatry. But guess what? Babylon's going to make some war crimes along the way, too. And they're going to be judged for what they did. So the follow-up to all of this, right. the theme is that God's a constant God of justice, that there isn't going to be a crime that goes unpunished. His people will be handed over to the pagan nations. And note, the pagan nations that his people were handed over will answer to the way that they treated them. Hence the creating calamity. Yeah, and yeah. noting the point of contrast, what again is the point? Not that we should emphasize the negative and say, God creates darkness, God causes calamity. No, it's making a point of emphasis to a guy who's going to go to war. I'm the one who's going to give you victory. I'm the one who's going to give you peace. I'm the Lord. There's right. no other besides me. Not right. your gods, this God. <laughs> yeah. So note that point. The context, just like with in Exodus chapter 4, doesn't denote a cause, a motive, a malice. And we can go to John chapter 9 and go and uh, note an example of God using the fallenness of this world for good ends for the glorification of his son, pointing us to salvation. We saw the results were expedient to that. He bowed down and worshiped him despite being kicked out of the synagogue. But what would, I guess, be the real issue, the real assumption behind the statement, since God wants us all to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, why aren't we? Is it my sin? Is it because I'm not praying right? Because I didn't give enough? The assumption is God always wants us to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Isn't there a proverb in fact, an entire chapter of Proverbs, where the writer says, Lord, give me neither riches nor poverty. Don't give me riches lest I forget you, and don't give me poverty lest I steal and profane your name. The goal is contentment, right? Mm -hmm. and that's the point. So if we're put in a situation where we're treating God like he's a fallen, sinful human being like the rest of us, we've missed the whole point of what makes him God, at one vow, God is good, and good is God, right? Yeah, yeah. But if on the other hand we're going to say, well, I think I'm gooder than God, well, uh, phonics aside, let's just put that to the test here. You just blasphemed. Is that good? Yeah. <laughs> but taking again a step back, what is the point of emphasis in these passages? It's noting not that God intends evil for evil's own sake. The end purpose is always his glory, our highest good. But I repeat myself. But if on the other hand were to say, so is it God's will then for us to be sick? No, it's God's will for you to be ultimately healed. And if it's the permitting of a sickness to run its course so that your physical body dies, what's happened? Glorification forever. If it's the purveyance of a disability like Johnny Erickson Tata, the idea of you focusing less on your physical and more right. on the spiritual, God can use that. But to say that God broke that woman's back yeah. or God blinded the eyes of that child, that's silly. That's not in the passage. Yeah. Um, you know, we do see, uh, the only thing I would add to that is that we do see scriptures where God allows certain mm -hmm. Maladies. I think of uh, the thorn in the flesh that the Apostle Paul spoke of in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12 right. and verse 5. In fact, the word in the original language means a tent stake. Uh, mm -hmm. We see other data from uh, the book of Galatians that uh, Paul suffered a disease of the eyes. Mm -hmm. uh, so much he even makes the statement to the uh, church at Galatia that if you could have taken your eyes out and given them to me, you would have. Mm -hmm. You know, I came to you because of this infirmity. That's the only reason I ended up in your territory in the first place. 
So, you know, when it comes to, uh, Monique, I guess the claims of the name it and claim it, the prosperity gospel, um, you know, it's really interesting. I got into sort of a, an interaction with some people, really adherents of this sort of thing. And uh, they would say, you know, and I was reading some of the posts this fellow who was a pastor put up, and, and he would say uh, that one of the things the Bible never teaches is that uh, God allows you to be sick. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I can see where we'd all like that to be true. Um, I can see where we're in heaven. That won't be the reality. Yep. But here on earth, well, um, we just don't see it passing scriptural muster. And, you know, Monique, the other thing about the poor you'll have with you always, you know, it's just indicative of the fact that we uh, live in a fallen world. I think maybe the best way to look at this world, Monique, and keep all your uh, lanyards from getting crossed, is to realize that uh, we live in a world that is as close as a sinner will ever get to heaven. We see God's glory. We see him working. We see his compassions and his and his beauty. Yeah, Francis Schaeffer once described this world we live in like a beautiful ruin. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that people can't really live in it anymore, but it really used to be something. Yeah. Uh, you know, but we also need to understand that this world is as close as a saint will ever get to hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, does God, did, did God from the beginning delight in the idea that there's going to be suffering, there's going to be people, say, live, subsisting on garbage dumps and things like this? which I've seen personally. Um, No, that wasn't the way creation was going to be. We live in a fallen world. Now, God is going to right this world gone wrong. Uh, When Jesus returns, we're going to have a perfect world, a perfect government, a perfect environment, perfect provision. There's going to be no hunger, uh, no no thirst, no deprivation, no want. And at the end of a thousand years, man's still going to rebel. Why? Because we're the problem. Uh, when man fell in the Garden of Eden, it had uh, global, even universal consequences. Mm. And uh, God, for his part, Moni could have very easily said, okay, I gave you every advantage. I gave you this perfect environment, perfect fellowship with me. You turned your back on me, go, and you know, you made your bed, go ahead and sleep in it. Uh, but he didn't. He immediately began a plan to uh, reconcile us to him. And it culminated in Jesus God in human flesh walking among us. And when he walked among us, he wasn't dwelling in palaces. Uh, I mean, this is sort of a staggering thing for a lot of people to wrap their mind around. But Jesus said, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, Jesus knew what it was like to be homeless. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's pretty radical yeah. when you stop and think about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously he had friends and people that uh, were, were there with him, but he wasn't here to get the goodies and the benefits. Mm-hmm. And if uh, the prosperity gospel is in fact true and Jesus was the perfect man, then Jesus should have never experienced things like hunger. Well, in his fasting for 40 days in the wilderness, where the scripture very understatedly says he was hungry. Yep. <laughs> uh, you know, Jesus should have never uh, experienced things like personal betrayal. He should have never experienced things like pain and suffering, and yet he experienced them to the nth degree when he died on the cross. So, you know, when, uh, when we look at this world, Monique, I, I'm always brought back to uh, a quote from uh, the, the British mystery writer Dorothy Sayers, who once said that whatever game God's playing with his creation, he's kept his own rules and played fair. Mm. Uh, he went through all of the cramping restrictions 
say of poverty, of, of betrayal, of, of, uh, of human relationships, and uh, felt it well worthwhile. Uh, so uh, it's been said that Jesus is the only one you'll ever talk to and not have to say the words, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because he's been through it all. He knows what it's like to be poor. He knows what it's like to have everybody he loved turn his back on him. He knows what it's like to be misunderstood. He knows what it's like to experience the excruciating pain of the cross and the scourging and so on. Uh, so, you know, when we go through these things, we know that we don't go through them alone. Now, being a Christian is just that. Uh, we follow Christ, and if we live in this world, the same world that Christ lived in, and we follow him, we can very routinely expect to experience the same things that he did. And he didn't get the get-out-of-jail-free card from these things. Does that mean that God never wants people to be blessed or happy? Well, there's scriptures that talk about those who are rich in this world uh, to uh, not set your eyes on worldly wealth, but on uh, the living God who gives all things to us liberally to enjoy. You know, if you're in that set of circumstances, you have the opportunity to be able to bless others. So, yeah, sometimes God will allow people to experience uh, great uh, blessing and great prosperity. Mm. But God is more interested in our soul prospering than our, you know, credit report prospering. Yeah. And, uh, and we have to, to draw a line there. Uh, we also have to ask the question when we're sick, it, can God use these things, you know, to build up our faith? You know, I went through a bout of cancer a couple of uh, years ago, and I would have to say that going through that and all the ups and downs that were involved, God taught me lessons I, I couldn't learn anywhere else. Yeah. You know, I mean, would I sign up again for it? <laughs> I hope I don't have to go through that again. Yeah. But I do look back on that, and uh, I, I say, well, bless you, Lord, for letting me have that experience. If for no other reason, then I can look people in the eye who've just received a cancer diagnosis and be able to say to them, you know, I understand exactly how that feels. I understand how it feels just to have the wind knocked out of you like that. Uh, but this is what the Lord's done for me, and, and, and these are some of the life lessons he's taught me in the midst of all of this. And, uh, you know, unless you go through it, uh, it's kind of hard to look at somebody and say, I understand. Because yep. you really don't. Right. So sometimes God will allow us to go through extreme circumstances mm -hmm. so that we can be comforted and then extend that same comfort to others. Mm -hmm. So, Monique, I hope that helps you out figuring that out a little bit. Yeah. If you don't know what it's like to be on the poor side of things, uh, you'll never be able to relate to somebody who's struggling mm -hmm. with poverty. Uh, if uh, maybe God will put you in a place where you experience great wealth and prosperity, and he wants you to go there because he wants you to be able to see that you can have everything and still have nothing. Yep. You don't have the Lord. That's right. But it's all about him. That's and, right. Uh, just a quick point about the poor I have with you always. Remember, just like with the point in Isaiah, this is a note of contrast, as, again, Hebrews are tend to do. Judas Iscariot told a woman who was taking a very costly perfume to prepare Jesus for burial. that She was investing what she had with Jesus while he was still physically here. Judas said, why wasn't this expensive perfume sold to the poor and, uh, you know, given the money and so forth? And Jesus says, the poor you have with you always, positive, me you do not have with you always. That's the point. It's not saying, yes, poverty will be enforced even during the millennium. No, it's saying that Jesus isn't going to be with you as long, but the poor, you can have more opportunities to be generous then. Yeah. That's the point. Yeah, seize your opportunity while, while you got it. Yeah, yeah. very good. Yeah. Great. Thanks, guys. Great question, Monique. Hope that, that helps you out. Thanks so much for that question today. Great question indeed. Uh, I have a question from Kevin uh, from his, his friend Tom about God's truth and ultimate truth. 
the question is, does Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 and Romans 8, 7 prove that there's no way for God's truth to be the only truth? It's a huge thing in the world right now, like yeah. your truth, find your truth. That's my truth and your truth. And truth is just something we can come up with ourselves. So is there an ultimate truth? Is God's truth the ultimate truth? Yeah, uh, when you encounter people that'll throw out all these passages, and uh, just so that you're all familiar of the things that we go through for all of you guys, um, he mentions some like philosophical principles that have nothing whatsoever to do with what he was claiming. Uh, Turing's halting problem, Godel's incompleteness theorem, uh, Chatlin's algorithm information theory, and all these other proofs. Which it, we're all very aware of, of course. Uh, of and, course. Yeah. Uh, the <laughs> principle is basically the same kind of runaround you find with someone who uses long words in order to avoid accountability. The idea that, well, I'm so far above you, I read all these things, I can cite all these words. It's like a false teacher that says, well, you haven't studied this in the Greek. If you were a Hebrew scholar, you'd understand what I'm arguing here. Yeah, it always reminds me of Woody Allen's famous line, is knowledge knowable? And if not, how do we know this? <laughs> so <laughs> that's pretty much it. It brings, brings you to. And <laughs> this is the... Uh, ultimate failure of the argument. Uh, there's two stories. One uh, a gentleman whose books uh, helped me get introduced to philosophy and logic. Uh, he uh, recently gone to be with the Lord, but he was in a philosophy class where the professor went on to lay out this argument of empirical verifiability. Uh, that, that sounds nice and fancy, right? But it was meant to be a dismissal of the concept of the supernatural. That you know, if you got, and this is if something isn't empirically verifiable meaning physically, tangibly in the world. Scientific method, yeah. Or true by definition, it's not meaningful. And then he went on to conclude, because the supernatural isn't empirically verifiable or true by definition, it requires a proof, but outside of empiricism, therefore it can't be true. And the individual raised his hand and went, is that theory empirically verifiable or true by definition? Yeah. <laughs> and, and the professor kind of hoot and hot about that for a while and then uh, failed him in the class despite getting every question right. So the point of emphasis is when you have a well-constructed theory, you have a well-thought-through philosophy, it's really weird when it just comes face-to-face -face with a cold, hard series of facts and then ends up falling flat on its face. You can propose all of the mathematical analogies and theorems. You can mention a bunch of European names and so forth, and it's not going to mean anything if ultimately you end up defeating yourself on the statement's assumption. And that's simply this. If the statement, there is no absolute truth, is true, absolutely, <laughs> then it's either wrong or wrong <laughs> if there is no absolute <laughs> that is truth. That's a bit of a pickle, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> if there is no absolute truth, then that statement is not absolutely true. Yeah. And if there is absolute truth, well, that statement's just false. <laughs> so here's the point that's being made. When people are like, well, that's your truth, and this is God's truth, and because there's so many different kinds of truths that God just doesn't exist because he claims to be the only truth. And noting the passages, he mentions, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So my thoughts are higher above the earth. That's the point in passage in Isaiah. And the same thing in Romans chapter 8 and noting the point about, you know, the uh, foolish things of the world are simple to God and so forth. There's other passages in Corinthians that make the same point, right? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I think what it comes down to is, is this. Um, you know, if we are starting... 
uh, our search for truth uh, based upon our feet planted squarely here on the horizontal. Yeah. And we immediately turn off a potential channel for truth, mm. the supernatural, yep. and then find ourselves without any appeal to the supernatural, looking around in this world and coming to the conclusion, much like Solomon did, that everything's vanity and chasing the wind. Yep. Okay, does that mean that there is no supernatural or does that mean that we've turned off the channel? Right. Um, you know, when it comes to uh, the idea of understanding things that cannot be verified scientifically. Uh, well, you can't, for instance, uh, put uh, six ounces of love in a test tube. Uh, you can't measure loyalty on scales. Uh, you know, you can't uh, devise a, uh, a uh, control group scientific experiment uh, to uh, determine what beauty is. There are certain things that are beyond the pale of the scientific method, of materialism, if you will. And, you know, the philosophy of nihilism, that there is no God, there is no order to the universe, uh, that we are all just a nice roll of some chemical dice, and that's the only reason we're here. And so we have to somehow try to find meaning in a meaningless universe, which seems like the old, uh, there are absolutely no absolutes and you know you'll run into the usual suspects on twitter the skeptics say well i can have meaning in my life you know without resorting to the supernatural mm -hmm. oh really well you know again if uh, everything you know and love is going to end up uh, someday in uh, in heat death uh, every uh, achievement of our civilization is going to be uh, completely in uh, total darkness when the amount of energy in this universe runs out um well then what is it you know why is it why even care right. say, oh you know and, but but the, the reason i think they get upset is you're, you're kind of getting close to what's going on here here's the, the 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 key issue in all of this and without hoo-hawing and going through all the heisenberg uncertainty principle and things like this mm -hmm. here's the bottom line um the question is this has god spoken because if God has spoken, well, then we have a basis for understanding truth with mm -hmm. a capital T, not my truth, your truth, uh, a truth that we somehow get together as a society and sort of agree upon because mm -hmm. it gives us an evolutionary advantage over, say, the, uh, I don't know, the, uh, the warthog or something like that. <laughs> um, but if there's truth with a capital T, binding on all people at all times, because God, who created all things, has given it to us, mm. uh, then suddenly we're out of the realm, and no matter how many interesting German-sounding names you attach to philosophy, basically what you're, you're getting into the realm of is speculation. Man, with his limited capacities, trying to make sense out of everything. Or you can consider the possibility of revelation, mm. that there is a God out there, and he's spoken to us and that makes all the difference in the world you know you mentioned the passage sean in uh, the book of first corinthians uh in first corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6 a guy who had up close and personal encounters with the best and brightest minds of the greek world at that time the apostle paul said however we speak wisdom among those who are mature yet not the wisdom of this age nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing uh, in, in a sense the nihilist is correct 
uh, because if you reject God, you're coming to nothing. The sum total of your life is going to be meaningless, and you're going to end up separated from God forever. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For if they'd known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. In other words, Paul points out that the ultimate indictment of man is this. When God walked among us as a man, what did we do? We crucified him. And I don't think that was just exclusive to that time and that culture and the Romans and the Jews. I think wherever Jesus would have shown up, the same thing would have happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, he says, but as it is written, eye has not seen nor ear has heard nor entered into the heart of man those things which God has prepared for those who love him. Now, if I remember this fellow's uh, post, he tried to cite that as a proof text that we can't understand really anything uh, about God. You know, eye has not seen nor ears here nor entered into the heart of man the things which God prepared for love. Mm. So, so we can't really understand anything about God. Well, I, I, always, something. I, I, I always say, well, read the next verse. Mm. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now, we receive not the spirit of the world, this world system we're in, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he might instruct him? Oh, well, who has known the mind of the Lord? We can't really know, uh, you know, Paul Simon's famous line from Slip Sliding Away, God only knows, God makes his plan, the information's unavailable to the mortal man. Mm. Well, Paul would differ because the very next line is, but we have the mind of Christ. Mm. When you come into a living relationship with God, suddenly you enter into this realm where through God's word and through the leading and guiding of his spirit, suddenly you get it. Mm. Suddenly this Bible, and you know, I remember trying to read the Bible before I was a Christian, and it just didn't make any sense to me at all. I, I remember reading the Bible for the first time after I received Christ, and suddenly the Bible really got good all of a sudden. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, it wasn't the Bible that changed, it was me. Yeah. But if you're spiritually dead, if you've rejected a relationship with the true and living God, if you've already made up your mind, and they're quoting long German uh, philosophers to justify your point, that we can't really know anything about God, well, that's pretty much where you're going to stick. But if you entertain the idea, the possibility, that there is a God, that he has proved his existence, not just in the creation, not just in the internal nature of of us as human beings with this hunger for purpose and meaning and a thirst for unconditional love and acceptance that we never find in this world. If we hunger for something we can't find in this world, as C.S. Lewis said, maybe we're created for another one. Right. Uh, but but the most important thing is that God walked among us in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the issue, not yeah. German philosophers, not the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the issue. Right. And if God has walked among us, if he's given us incontrovertible evidence that he's walked among us by dying on a cross and rising from the dead, and his message that he delivers is, yes, you can know me, 
and you can know significant things about life, death, and how to make a soft landing on the afterlife, we should run, not walk to our nearest Bible. So uh, that's pretty much where I'd leave it. Yeah, very yeah, good. And, and again, when it comes to these complicated conversations, the best thing to handle yourself with is to understand in plain English, get past the Latin, get past all of the fancy terms and stuff, get down to what they're actually arguing, which in this case, those principles were saying, if something is unknowable, then essentially it's meaningless because it only exists within the mind or the concept of an individual. And if God's concept is unknowable to anything apart from him, what relevance does he have to anything apart from himself? Therefore, it's more reasonable to conclude it doesn't exist because it's beyond our capacity to know even if it was there. Now, here is the argument. He says, since the Bible mentions God having knowledge beyond him, he would classify as that unknowable entity. Well, Tom here is claiming to know things that you don't know. Kevin, and again, this isn't for him. He stopped listening 20 minutes ago. But if you encounter him with this sort of argument again, or if you encounter someone, anyone here listening that's throwing around that sort of philosophical hash, just make them play by their own rules. Okay, there is something out there that knows more than me. Therefore, it qualifies as a non-existent thing because it's unknowable, because I don't know of something smarter than me. Well, Tom claims to be smarter than me. There is nothing in this world, based on my sheer force of narcissism, that <laughs> can't be smarter than me. Therefore, Tom doesn't exist. He's going to, of course, object, and then we'll get into the I think, therefore, I am principle. You can get into David Hume and all that other fun stuff, but it's going to ultimately amount to nothing. If someone bases their argument on a self-defeating principle, there is no truth. Is that true? Well, that's your truth. I, I have my truth. God can't influence any of these truths. Okay, is that your truth? Or does that truth have both influence on you and me and God? It, it doesn't stand on its own feet. Or is it possible that God has a different opinion? Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah. How dare he? <laughs> How dare he? <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for that question. Um, we have about five questions and not much time, so I guess we can see what we can, we can get to, a bit of a speed round. We have a question from uh, God, G-A-H-D, God. Sounds like a British person trying to say God with an American accent, God. Uh, can animals still be possessed by demons today, or was it just one time with the pigs? Uh, what should we do if we encounter one, a demon-possessed animal, I guess, and what do demons do when they aren't possessing humans? Uh, God says that uh, he has a Catholic friend who took their car to an exorcist. <laughs> I, I fully empathize with that. So yes. Call the tech priest to beseech the missing <laughs> yeah. spirit. No, um, the first car I had needed. Yes, call upon the motive force. Uh, the, the situation with the demons was a very specific situation, but it's not impossible. We just need to be careful not to focus so much on demon, demon, where's the demon who's got the demon. Demon just means an adversarial spirit, but we have all authority over them based on our relationship with Jesus Christ. There were people who tried to mention Jesus, but didn't have a relationship with him, and it just ended up making the situation worse and themselves naked. Feel and, free to ask and, later. And but, beat up. Yeah, yeah. That, that's also important. Yeah. But uh, I think the stripped naked part's the weird thing. <laughs> anyway, the point of emphasis is when we're asking about familiar spirits, we're asking, is this object, is this room, is this animal possessed? It could just have a bad attitude, could need a replacement part. Always fall back on the natural. If the supernatural is an option, if all other options have been eliminated, exorcisms you don't you don't need a professional sorry to put myself out of work here but if you have a genuine relationship with jesus christ and you are encountering someone who's possessed dad you've had experiences with legitimately demon-possessed people i yeah. have unfortunately yeah. as well you mention the name of jesus it 
hits it, you they look like they just got hit in the face with a brick uh, apart from the home alone 2 bruising it is really eerie yeah. but we in that department need to keep as far and as brief an encounter as possible because the only interactions you're going to have with that kind of thing are deceptive and just weird mention the name of jesus it's going to be fine get that situation resolved but when it comes to can they well the question isn't can things can happen but could they why would they in the case of the demons being sent into the pigs why did they go into the pigs not because that's just what demons do they were commanded yeah yeah, jesus Mm -hmm. told them to do that and why because they were selling those pigs to gentiles unlawfully the jews were judged as a result of that action and God could even use these adversarial spirits and an act of divine judgment, just like before with the pagan nation and his people. So note that very specific reason why the pigs were sent in. Uh, the same thing when you see, uh, you know, the exorcist accounts and stuff, usually for the sake of flavor and the themes, they just said like, oh, it just happened one day. And you actually read the eyewitness accounts. The reason this person got possessed is because they were getting involved in some difficult and dangerous things. Right. Demon possessions don't just happen. But if something goes wrong and you, you just ask, is this room haunted? Is my car possessed? It might just be broken. It might just be a rat in the attic. Sort out those things first. It's not a lack of faith. It's not uh, distancing yourself from true spirituality, like some bad teachers would say. Make sure that your understanding, your only offense and defense against the spiritual, is the Word of God in the name of Jesus. But I repeat myself. If, on the other hand, you're in a situation where you're going, seems just kind of superstitious to me. Well, then don't super any stish. Just focus on what's actually there. good advice. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, where God guides, he provides. He brings you into a situation where you encounter an entity like this. You have all the authority of Jesus over it. So mm-hmm. there's no need to walk in fear or to think, oh, man, you know, they've got it all over us. That's good. Uh, you know, I think Satan does his worst work, uh, not when, you know, someone's throwing up pea soup or something like that and their head's revolving. I think his uh, worst work happens when he sows doctrines of demons that lie mm-hmm. to us about who we are, who God is, who yeah. Satan is, uh, what it means to have a relationship with God. Because if he can get us to believe wrong things on these crucial issues, boy, he's got us. Yeah. So that's what you got to watch out for. Right. Subtle but devastating yeah. things yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. Great stuff. I hope that helps you out, God. Thank you for that question. Uh, real quick, we've got just a few minutes left here. A question came in on YouTube. Is it okay for females to be a head pastor of a church? And if so, are they required to have a head covering? A friend at work is attending a small church where the pastor died and the wife has taken over. Well, that's a hugely controversial issue. I'll I'll just get to the the gist of it. You know, it's almost uh, to me a um, kind of a a diagnostic uh, as far as how we look at God's word. There's two ways you can look at God's word. Uh, Mm. You can be under its authority or you can be an authority over it. Uh, and in our day and age, there's a lot of people that look at things and because they buy into what culture rather than what Christ had to say about things, they will put themselves in a position of being over the Bible. And hence they begin to pick and choose and begin to say things like, well, that was just Paul or they were male chauvinist pigs back then. Or, you know, I'll come up with uh, 15 reasons not to uh, believe this. But the clear teaching of God's word says this. Uh, in First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, with braided, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, 
but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now, notice here we see there are a distinction of roles that God wants us to have in the church. Although we are equal in relationship in all ways, we've got a different job to do. Hmm. Men are created to be the spiritual leaders. Women are not to teach or exercise authority over men within the church. Why? Because Paul was a male chauvinist pig, because (laughs) men are just better at this sort of thing. No, we are given two reasons, that Adam was formed first, then Eve. Paul's Hmm. first thing is not about culture, not about, you know, me being a male chauvinist pig. It's the order of creation. Again, that's the first appeal. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. From that time onward, one of the reasons that men are to be in that spiritual role is the after effects of the fall hmm. uh, that we've all got our little tweakings and torquings and twistings. And, and uh, you know, again, there's a difference between how men and women perceive things. And uh, because of that, we have these different roles to play. Now, women are to teach and exercise authority over other women. And men, I believe, are not to be in that set of circumstances as far as discipling and counseling. You start to cross lines along that line. Boy, I can just give you a long laundry list of people I knew who were in ministry who thought they could play fast and loose with those rules, ended up falling into affairs, not in ministry any longer. Let women teach women, let men teach men and the entire flock. If we follow the instructions, we're going to be just fine. Yeah. Amen. That brings us to the end of the show for today. Thank you for your questions. Sorry if we didn't get to your question. We'll pick it up again tomorrow, especially if you join us again and restate your question. That's a good way to do it. Stick around. We'll be going live again. Book of Ezekiel in about 30 minutes. God bless you guys. We'll see you same time, same place tomorrow. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.